Hello, Sandra. Hi there, Neil. There is so much stuff on Vladimir Putin that we could talk for days and days. But what we discussed in part one was his time primarily in East Germany and Dresden, where he collaborated with international terrorists like Carlos de Jackal and the RAF on murdering corporate management, murdering journalists. Uh, all of this stuff was part of the Cold War at the time in the 1970s and 1980s. Then we finished up that episode by covering the fall of the Soviet Party and how that landed Putin on the staff of his former law professor, who at that time had become the mayor of St. Petersburg, and how Putin managed to uh, wield his power within the mayor's administration over assets that were being shifted from state control to corporate control to consolidate his power and buy his way into Yeltsin's staff. And finally, his 40-year friend and former law professor, mentor when he was in college prior to his time in the KGB, he has murdered during his presidential campaign in 2000. Yeah, and that's Vladimir Putin. And whoever thinks they can trust him, they're making a big mistake because people who trusted him and didn't see him as a threat were very, very wrong. And they're dead now. So we're going to start just with a few names that are important throughout this episode. And everybody has heard, I think, about Alexander Litvinenko. He was a former FSB agent. And later he defected to the UK and he was killed on Putin's order with poisoned with polonium-210. And also Boris Berezovsky, who was one of Russia's biggest oligarchs and initially a supporter of Putin. In fact, he helped get Putin elected and he trusted him. He ended up dead too. So Alexander Litvinenko met Boris Berezovsky when the oligarch's car uh, exploded. That's how Litvinenko met Berezovsky. He investigated the explosion and at this time, Putin was a semi-important government official and he wielded influence. He was chief of staff, actually, right before he became prime minister. And by the way, do you know how Boris Berezovsky got rich, Neil? How's that? Well, not only the privatization process we talked about before, but also he bought a lot of Lada cars and then he sold them at a very big profit because he was smart enough to foresee that the rubble will collapse. So he bought Lada cars and then he sold them for a massive profit. And then he invested in Mercedes-Benz and foreign cars dealerships. Didn't your grandfather have a Lada? Yes, I think I told you about that. I'm originally from Romania and Romania is a former USSR satellite country. And Back when I was a child, my grandfather had exactly the type of car that Berezovsky got rich from, and it was our family's prized possession. It was green, like an olive green, and it looked like a box, which is kind of ironic because Lada also, in Romanian, Lada means box. <laughs> and really, it had these uh, old-fashioned seats the upholstery on them looked like an old curtain. So basically one time when I got sick and I vomited on the upholstery because I had car sickness as a child. And also I was at the time I had like a bad cold or something. I knew like my grandmother, she loved me so much, but I could tell that she was so upset that I vomited on that <laughs> upholstery. She didn't scold me or anything. Obviously I was sick, but I could tell, like I remember so clear as day I remember. I was, It was crazy with that car. And also we would only be able to drive cars every other weekend. So if you had a even number on your plate, even numbers had a weekend, uneven numbers next weekend and so on. That's how it went. So was this because of fuel shortage or I th was, was it something else? I un honestly... I would. Ha I don't analyze, so I'm not entirely sure. I, I think it might have been a combination of fuel shortage and also keeping the traffic to a minimum so that the city. So road is... shortage. So road shortage too. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, not really though, because at the time our infrastructure was pretty good. I mean, the roads were fine. It's just that I think even then, you know, most European capitals do not have a wide you know, sure, roads, because yes, they were built a long, long time ago. So back then people didn't have cars. 
you know, there were little carriages with horses at the most. It's fascinating to me that, you know, their solution to small roads. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, so off and on. So, yeah, New Orleans is a similar thing. New Orleans has been around since the 17th century, and it's the same thing. Very narrow streets because they were made for a horse and cart, not for a car. It's just fascinating to me that the Soviet solution to this problem is <laughs> just tell them to stay home and there will be less people on the streets. <laughs> it's crazy. And I remember going on vacations, we had to plan. Really, you have to have friends that had an uneven plane number. You have to make friends with uneven plane numbers if you wanted to go together somewhere for a picnic or something. So. <laughs> I have this image in my head of people putting their even number license plate on their Tinder profile with like a thumbs up next to it. It's just like, where are we going this, where are we going this weekend? <laughs> yeah. So back to our story now. Putin bumped Litvinenko up at his job at the time he was still in the FSB. So now he was working in a new secret division of the FSB. It was called the URPO, U-R-P-O. And this division was so secret that it was hidden in a bunker and there was absolutely no sign there, nothing. It was somewhere near Lubyanka. And Litvinenko found out that there was a kill order for Berezovsky. And he went to Berezovsky and told him, like, look, somebody's out to get you. And Berezovsky, because he trusted Putin, asked Litvinenko to go talk to Putin. And at this meeting, Litvinenko had a really strong gut feeling that Putin was trying to seem likable and open, but he really wasn't. By now, it was 1998, so the FSB was almost entirely corrupt. They have become 90% thugs and killers. So Litvinenko was really disillusioned by the whole situation. And then... He held that famous press conference where his friends from the FSB were wearing balaclavas and they spilled the beans on the corruption within the FSB. At this point, Putin was quite powerful. He was working as chief of staff for Boris Yeltsin and he started rising through the ranks because mostly he took advantage of his friendship with Berezovsky. In fact, Berezovsky did so much for him he pretty much got Putin elected. He even commissioned a biographical book that praised him to create an image of a powerful leader because Putin did not have that at the time. He was actually very bland. He wouldn't do good in, in the polls. So they needed to build an image for him. Now, Putin became president for the first time in May of 2000. Not even a month into his presidency. I think it was about three weeks. Four blocks of apartments exploded. Big bombs went off. And FSB agents were found placing bags of explosives in the basement of one block. And the FSB claimed they were doing a drill to test the vigilance of the locals. That is the most KGB thing I've ever heard. And this is this is what is so fascinating about all this stuff is... The nerve they have. It, it, well, it's not just the nerve. It's that you can you can draw such a straight line to here, this point we're talking about, from 15 years before this point. What is Putin doing? He's sitting in the KGB office in the Stasi building in Dresden, Literally talking to PLO guys and Carlos the Jackal about blowing things up. And RAF guys, of course, about blowing things up. Not only the FSB agents were found placing bags of explosives in the basement of those blocks. The Speaker of the Russian Parliament made a statement after the third attack saying that a block of apartments in Volgodonsk blew up. But it hadn't. Yet, the fourth bomb went off three days after his announcement. So, <laughs> <laughs> what I think is, him, the FSB, when they gave him the speaking points, they knew they were going to blow up these buildings, and they put one that hadn't blown up yet by mistake on the list. So, yeah, imagine that scene in Hunt for October. It's got to be like the same thing with this Soviet guy's walking into his office, and there's like pictures of all the... Politburo members on the bookshelf and the Soviet anthem is playing in the background and his assistant keeps walking in and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
and then he drops his tea when they realize something's wrong. In this case, it's because you got the date wrong, man. You screwed this up. It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, not only they're killing their own people in their sleep. I mean, that's just beyond me, but I don't know how these people are working in a secret service in any kind of capacity. I'm not saying they should be better. I'm glad they weren't because we found out about these things because of their lack of competence. But still, now I want to go back in time really a little bit just to explain how Putin prepared these attacks. Now, back to when Putin was prime minister, Litvinenko at some point after his press conference was fired because obviously, you know, he attacked the FSB. And he was working now for a private security company as a consultant for Boris Berezovsky. And to be honest, I think the mistake here was that Litvinenko kept hanging around Berezovsky. He should have carved his own way. But moving forward, Berezovsky even created and bankrolled a new party to support Putin. And he used his media empire, Channel One, to put Putin in power. Berezovsky was actually the one who, along with Putin and his family, convinced Boris Yeltsin to resign. And by the way, Channel One is the same TV channel where journalist Marina Ovsianikova interrupted the live feed a few weeks back with a banner saying, stop the war in Ukraine. In power, Putin's first decree that he signed granted the Yeltsin family complete and full immunity from prosecution. We talked about this before, but I feel it's such a good detail how this works, you know, like how mobsters take care of each other. Basically, it's like a passing of the baton, a baton of corruption. By now, Chechnya, you know, after the apartment bombings, that was Putin's pretext to start a war with Chechnya. He said that it was Chechen terrorists who came and killed those people in their sleep. So Chechnya was destroyed. And it's weird, though, how nobody was really so outraged then when Putin did the same thing that he's doing now in Ukraine. In fact, as far as numbers go in Chechnya... That was genocide. We are talking hundreds of thousands of civilians. Rapes, mass executions, tortures. But the West at the time was pretty much rooting for Putin, cheering him on. So yeah, if we look at what's going on in the Western world at this time, it's before 9-11, but that doesn't change the fact that Osama bin Laden is still the top of the most wanted list and still the object of every... Western politicians' attention, at least in the U.S. and the U.K. So even though we're pre-9-11, this is somewhat infortuitous in terms of Putin's timing, it still works out in his favor because the Western world, let's be honest, is not a, uh, is not a very specific crowd when it comes to who they like and who they don't like. When Osama bin Laden is wanted, then in the Western world, that gets reduced down to West good, East bad, Muslim bad, Christian good, especially with George Bush coming in as president in 2000. So the Western world tends to reduce things to childish black and white distinctions that don't really add up. and Yeah, and also dangerous distinctions. Cause us more grief over time. So the other side of this second Chechnyan war is, I mean, the Chechnyan separatists were an Islamic movement of people. They mm -hmm. were, yeah, they were funded by uh, Middle Eastern money and Middle Eastern weapons uh, to a large degree. And the West at this time is only obsessed with one Muslim, but by extension, that means all Muslims bad. So they don't care about Russians blowing up Chechnya. That's not a concern. Uh, Tony Blair at this time is wrapped up in trying to figure out how to let Pinochet go so that he can pretend to be a conservative. So that was completely ridiculous. Bill Clinton is at the end of his term in 1999. He's out. And uh, they're just kind of coasting along, presuming that Al Gore is going to win re-election, and then that doesn't happen. That turns into a giant controversy in the U.S. We have an, a presidential election crisis in 2000. So this is all off the radar in Western countries. Mm -hmm. That contributes to the ability of uh, Putin to pull all this off, I think. Yeah, and uh, you're right. The West was not looking or was on purpose trying to not notice what's going on. Now, as soon as he got in power, 
Putin also started to take control over free media. Uh, little by little, journalists started getting arrested, trumped-up charges were made up, all kinds of ridiculous things. And in time, he did purge the media and got it under state control almost completely. And especially uh, one publication in particular, Novaya Gazeta, which published a series about the apartment explosions. The journalists who did that ended up dead, all of them. Anna Politkovskaya, for example, she was a very good friend of Litvinenko's and Berezovsky. And she was murdered on Putin's birthday. And once he was done with the media, then the oligarchs were next on his agenda because he did not want to share power. So basically what he did, he called them to a meeting at the Kremlin, and he told them that the privatization process of factories and everything else is done. He told the oligarchs, look, you can keep what you stole so far, but do not get involved in politics. And Berezovsky at this point was absolutely flabbergasted because he pretty much made Putin president, and in his head, he assumed that he would be able to share power with Putin. He even made a proposal to him. He said, look, what about if I create this opposition party and we pretend to be enemies, but in fact, behind the curtains, we kind of like, you know, we wield power between us. And Putin was like, nope, all the power will be mine. That's the thing. He was helpful to everybody. And behind the curtains, he killed everybody that was a loose end. But generally the image, I mean, Berezovsky was shocked because he did not see Putin for what he was. This is what I was going to say is he understands the intersection of finance and corporate governance and international relations and political power in ways that these other guys did not. And that's how he wound up above them. He gave them the money they wanted. And then once they are hooked on the money, tell them, okay, you can keep it, have the money. But what you can buy with your money stops outside of that door. Outside of that door is the KGB and the KGB is in charge and I'm in charge of the KGB. Yeah. And the truth is he was very good at doing this because listen, the way he handled the situation, he also got rid of those FSB people who were not corrupt. That's the thing. He managed to basically consolidate power on all levels at the same time. So basically he got the oligarchs more or less under control even though it was a shock to them because nobody saw it coming, the people in the FSB that were not corrupt either left or pretty much were killed just because he could not have them jeopardize his path forward. Now, Berezovsky, in all honesty, was the oligarch, right? Also, he was a bit on the narcissistic side in the sense of he he had a very inflated sense of self-importance. He was really thirsty for power in a way because, you know, he could have just grown his business and live a lavish life and he would have been fine. But uh, of course, I'm not blaming him. But he wanted power as much as he wanted money. Yeah, you're right. That's... That's the bottom line is money you can have. I'll give you money and take it, buy what you want. But power you do not have. Power is with me. You need my permission. If you're sitting in that room, knowing that he's got the muscle behind him, that it's not just going to be a few people that get poisoned and thrown in the trunk of a car. You want to fight? You're going to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also important for background before we get into the actual investigation of the bombings uh, and the theater uh, massacre, pretty much, which we're going to discuss. At the same time, the Kursk submarine disaster happened and sailors in that case were left to drown, asphyxiate by Putin because he refused international help to save face. He felt like it was the macho thing to do, the right thing to do. He didn't want to seem weak. It's absolutely insane. And you know, by the way, that was the first case where the quote-unquote crisis actors craze and disinformation began. So what happened is the wives and the mothers of the trapped sailors were interviewed and they're crying on live TV, you know, begging the government to do something like any mother and wife would do. And Putin at the time, he was sunbathing on the Black Sea and he didn't really want to come back to Kremlin. He didn't want to be bothered. And so he said that the sailors' wives were crying and the mothers were actually sex workers paid to cause drama. Everybody in Russia, I think, remembers this. One of the women was crying on live TV 
at the time, some of the media was still free, so it wasn't completely under control. So one of these women was crying on TV and an FSB guy injected her in the neck with a sedative and she collapsed. I mean, that was a very shameful moment for a lot of Russians. That's when the Russians' uh, perception of Putin started to a little bit change. It was a pivotal moment. And there's a movie about that that probably not a lot of people have seen. I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, it wasn't a very big success. It's directed by Catherine Bigelow. And uh, Liam Neeson is the uh, submarine captain. Harrison Ford and Peter Sarsgaard are also in it. It's called K-19, The Widowmaker. Yeah. And uh, it's actually, there's a scene depicting that in the film that you know, all the wives of these uh, submarine crew are in a meeting with somebody from the, the Russian Navy and a couple of you know, FSB guys are kind of hanging around the corner. And they're all afraid to speak. And finally, one of them can't take any more, stands up and yells at the uh, the Navy admiral. And yeah, one of those FSB guys sneaks in from the corner and injects her with something. And they all see it. And it's so... That was yeah, inspired good, from real life, yeah. <laughs> I know, and if Hollywood is getting this right in 2002... How is it that Tony Blair and George Bush can't figure it out? <laughs> exactly. And I was going to make another point. I'm trying to not get political here. But, you know, when you hear uh, Republicans going on and on with crisis actors every time we have a horrible, horrible mass shooting here in the U.S., I mean, that's where it's coming from, crisis actors. It's coming from Putin. At this point, Berezovsky was fed up and he was also very upset about the whole situation. So he attacked Putin for the handling of the Kursk submarine disaster. But after this, obviously Putin, who squashed an Aeroflot embezzlement case against Berezovsky, appointed a new prosecutor and basically unleashed the dogs on Berezovsky. So Berezovsky fled to London and also at the time Litvinenko had been repeatedly arrested and released on made-up charges as retaliation for his press conference exposing FSB's corruption. So he goes to London too, and what is happening, Berezovsky still had a stake in Channel 1, and Putin wanted it. Putin wanted full control of the media, right? And he sent Abramovich, by the way, <laughs> and he was, Abramovich was the only Elson era oligarch who was still in the graces of Putin and still is, by the way, right now. Actually, Zelensky recently asked the United States to not impose sanctions on Abramovich because he might help negotiate with Putin. So Abramovich somehow made it out okay. But besides that, Putin wanted Channel 1 back, Berezovsky didn't want to give it back, and then Putin arrested one of Berezovsky's friends put him in prison, and Berezovsky gave up the TV station just to help his friend get out of prison. And Putin didn't let him out of prison. He was there for four years. Anyway, the point I guess I'm trying to make is that at the time, Putin is working all possible uh, scenarios and avenues to get full control and full power over, over the media and over the people. And while this is all going on, Bush, Clinton, Tony, Tony Blair, all the Western leaders were cheering on for Putin. The West just loved him. This guy, he understands he has to manage his perception in Western countries while he's doing this. So, you know, when a guy moves to London because he's upset, okay, let him go. You know, let him spend a few dollars. Let him, let him go buy a house. Let him go buy some cars, make some friends. And when he's not worthy of being on the front page anymore six months from now, then he's going to touch the wrong doorknob, and that's the end of the world. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. No. That you got it exactly right. Well, in Berezovsky's case, it lasted a little longer until Putin was able to kill him, just because he was so rich and he had the best um, security teams to keep him safe. But Putin is relentless. So yeah. But back to the situation. This is the first time the name. Um, Lugovoy pops up. Berezovsky's friend, the one that was imprisoned, he had a blood condition, right? So that's why Berezovsky was so worried about him. That's why he gave up the TV station. But at the time, this guy Lugovoy popped up at the prison and pretended to help Berezovsky's friend to escape somehow. They were caught as they were trying to leave the prison because Berezovsky's friend was going to a medical appointment. So that's how he was able to get out of the prison initially. But it was all a setup. Lugovoy turned out to be an FSB agent, which later on will be accused and 
the world knows it, he's the one who actually poisoned Alexander Litvinenko with polonium later on in London. That's just a small digression, just so that we can see what kind of people are involved in this. Yeah, letting a guy out of prison with a supposed escape plan and then letting him land in the car with yes. the guys who are going to kill him is like the straight out <laughs> of the Godfather too. You know, it's like I picture Putin sitting around like James Caan asking Clemenza, how's our friend doing? And he says, oh, Alexander won't see him no, no more. No, it really is. So in 2002, Blowing Up Russia is published. This is one of the most iconic books about Putin written by Alexander Litvinenko and Yuri Felstinsky. Alexander Litvinenko, in the meantime, obviously we all know he was poisoned by Putin. Uh, and they also worked with the Chechen rebels leader who was falsely accused of planting the apartment bombs. His name was Akemes Kochaev. And they all worked together to investigate the Moscow apartment bombings, right? Obviously supported financially by Berezovsky. At the time, they were all in London and they were organizing this investigation from there. After the apartment bombings explosions, the FSB announced that traces of hexagen were found. I mean, this is another one of those cases where they dropped the ball because they are so incompetent, because then they had to correct the gaffe immediately when they realized that this chemical compound is only produced by their own military facilities. It's not something that anybody else other than the Russian government or the FSB can get their hands on. So, <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, it's the same thing with these polonium poisoning uh, episodes that Putin has fascinated himself with. It's like, you're not just killing a guy, you're sending a mafia-style message. It's like, no, we want them to know who killed this guy. Yeah, no, but in this case, they literally spoke without thinking, you know, when they said they found traces of hexagen, because it can only come from one place. So basically, they accused themselves, and then they had to backpedal. Now, there were explosive experts who went to Riazan and testified that the sacks of explosives that were found by the people living in the blocks of flats in the basement. And in fact, right after the explosions, the local cops, they were called and they came to the scene immediately and they managed to track down and arrest a few people who turned out to work for the FSB. Isn't and that something? <laughs> Yes, and of course they were let go and then the whole, oh, it was a training exercise to see if the people are vigilant. That whole BS was put out after that. And of course, Anna Politkovskaya published all of this in the Novaya Gazeta and the FSB also had a soldier posted in a Riazan military facility warehouse and he was posted there to guard 50 kilograms sacks labeled sugar. Now, this soldier... From reports, he actually used some of the sugar for his coffee and he was wondering why it is so sour. <laughs> like, what's happening? Anyway, <laughs> this was before the explosion. <laughs> so four separate experts from Britain and France and other countries examined all the evidence and they did conclude that the bomb the FSB planted in Riazan was real. There was no training exercise, nothing of that kind. And also, the former director of factory that was producing the hexagen confirmed that the FSB recently did acquire a lot of hexagen from that plant in Russia. And of course, the Blowing Up Russia book was banned by Putin immediately, and it was put on Russia's official list of extremist materials, you know, because it just portrayed that Putin killed hundreds of his people in their sleep just to be able to yes. start a war in Chechnya. And on 9-11... Putin was the first to call Bush to offer condolences, and he compared the bombings in Russia to the 9-11 tragedy, and he said, Russia knows better than anyone what terrorism is. <laughs> As I'm saying, he understands the day before we recorded this, Putin is on Twitter, and he says that cancel culture is oppressing the Russian people, and he compared himself to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Nobody can convince me that he got any part of this wrong in terms of what he intended. He knows how completely obsessed the British press is with these uh, these J.K. Rowling transgender comment stories. And 
this was probably crafted with a staff of people. Oh, no, of just course. Just to make sure course. it gets like, the maximum possible Twitter traffic. Yes, this was... No, no, no. Everything that comes out of the Kremlin is is really carefully constructed, and it's it's pure disinformation. To be honest, I think at this point that the news should not even uh, talk about it. It should be ignored. The only thing that the news and yeah, Western journalists cannot do is not post. They cannot not post. They will post every day. Yeah. And all you have to do is say the most insane thing you can think of and without their permission, associate another person with it. And then you obligate that other person to respond and ta-da, you are trending. I suppose like uh, our boy Theodore was the first fraud influencer Vladimir Putin is the first dictator influencer. Listen, more than that, when 9-11 happened, he managed to present himself yet again to the West as the supportive anti-terrorism democratic leader and supported U.S. in sending troops to Afghanistan also on Russian territory. And then he announced that Islamist Chechen separatists are trained by Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. So he turned the whole situation in his favor. While Russia was killing innocent civilians in Chechnya, he pretended to support NATO and fight terrorism. And of course, the West was thrilled. Tony Blair invited him to Downing Street and, you know, Bill Clinton uh, actually flew to Russia to congratulate him. It's because the Chechens were Muslim. So at the time, you know, it fit the um, West's trajectory with the whole, yeah, the the narrative. At this point, Litvinenko was asked by Berezovsky to dig more, even more into the bombings, right? So he was working with Felstinsky now, and they went to Georgia together to find out more and meet this person, Akshmez Gochaev. And this was the guy who Putin said was the culprit for the Moscow apartment building bombings. But the whole time they were watched by the FSB. And at some point, their guards said, look, this is not safe. We can't really offer you a lot of protection here. And they went to a meeting with Gochaev. He didn't show up, but he sent somebody else. And that person told them, look, he's hiding in this region that is off limits in one of the separatist regions, off limits to the FSB. He can't come himself, but I'll try to bring you tomorrow a video of his statement about the bombings that he's innocent. He didn't do it. The point is they come back to the hotel and then it turns out that in the meantime, their driver gets kidnapped. So at that point, the bodyguards there said, okay, we're taking you to the airport. You need to get out because you're not going to make... Yeah, that's it. All these guys suffer from not growing up on gangster movies like we did in the US. If they got a chance to see the Godfather movies and Scarface and Goodfellas, they would know that when you go to a meeting and the wrong guy shows up, it's time to go. You don't need to stay around and figure out what the details are because whatever news it is, it's bad. And they barely made it to Frankfurt. Now, Gochayev, the one accused of the bombings, managed later on to send them um, a letter. The letter explained that Gochayev was asked by a, a business partner or a friend to rent some storage space in those buildings that blew up. And he thinks, now looking back, obviously he thought that guy was FSB, which... Probably he was. And after this, an independent commission was formed. And this independent commission was led by human rights activists and very respected non-corrupt politicians like Sergei Kovalev and some journalists, academics, lawyers, so all trustworthy people. The problem was that for them to have access to the FSB's files, they needed to have somebody who was a victim. So they found this woman whose mother was killed in the bombings, and she agreed to help the commission. So from that point, they also had access to the FSB's files. So the journalist who serialized Blowing Up Russia was very, very involved. Uh, His name was Yuri Shchashkochklin, and he dedicated pretty much all his time to finding out the truth, though he was digging into the situation now as well. Litvinenko and Felstinsky, after making it out alive from Georgia, testified in front of the commission, and they described that Gochaev was probably telling the truth. They told the story in detail, and in fact... It was a shock to the FSB that these two people managed to get in contact with FSB's most wanted men, because officially he was villain number one. 
that infuriated them even worse. Soon after, Litvinenko wrote his second book, called The Gang from Lubyanka, and it was detailing Putin's very tight connection with the Tambov Gang in St. Petersburg. Yeah, well, wait till they run into the Chicken Spring Gang, then they're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) the book was obviously banned. And Litvinenko somehow organized giving it away for free in Russia, but whoever was caught with it, people were beaten up, taken to the police, stuff like that. You got to have your index librorum prohibitorum. I mean, the history teaches mm-hmm. us that. <laughs> so as the investigation into the Moscow apartment buildings was still unfolding, on October 23rd, 2002, the Moscow theater hostage crisis happens. More than a thousand people were at the theater So just at the beginning uh, of the performance, the stage was stormed by about 40 camouflaged and heavily armed Chechen militants. They put explosives everywhere in the theater, and the audience was pretty much taken hostage at that point. And then they made their demands known, and they said that unless Russian troops withdraw from Chechnya immediately, they are going to kill everybody. Now, this caused a three-day siege with uh, armed FSB surrounding the building. Ahmed Zakayev, an exiled Chechen leader who was in Copenhagen at the time, urged the militants to spare the people and asked them to not do anything, you know, rush, to, to be calm. But after 57 hours inside, some of these hostages started to have trouble breathing. And at this point, there was a lady inside the theater who managed to go live on a Moscow radio station. And she said, I quote, they're gassing us. We're begging not to be gassed. And initially people thought she meant the Chechens inside the theater, but no. It's amazing looking back on this. And this was in the news in the US, but was it? Front page, not for very long, because Muslim bad. And Muslims did this in Muslim bad, so yeah, whatever. You know, just yeah, uh, it's just it was just one of those things. It's like something Carlos would have done back in the 70s and 80s. It's just not one of those things. It'll go away. Before we started researching all this, I'd forgotten about it. It wasn't that big a deal here because Muslim bad and uh, Putin is good and Putin's going to sort it out because that's what we boil everything down to. So, yeah. Yeah, it turns out that obviously FSB had to know that when you're going to guess and use whatever nerve agent or opiate, whatever they used, I mean, it was obviously going to affect the hostages as well as the militants. I don't know what they're thinking, but point is they went in and pretty much shot all the Chechens in the head as they were passed out. So not arrested them to put them, no, shot in the head on the spot at close range. And then, you know, first responders started carrying the theater people outside. Some of them had fainted. Some of them, you know, choked on their own vomit. Some of them were dead and so on. And the FSB tried to hide them in the buses they brought nearby because the press was there and he didn't want the press to see the carnage. And the people were putting those buses in piles. The problem is that some people that were at the bottom were still alive. They were still breathing. So they died... From being crushed, in other from words. Being, yes. yes, from having other bodies on top of them. It was a disaster. And Putin's official declaration about this, I quote, we were not able to save them all. And then he blamed the whole thing on terrorism. And then Tony Blair called to congratulate him on how he handled the crisis. Of course he did. I'm sure that was probably 10 minutes after he sent Pinochet home and uh, rather than turning him over to Spain. So, yeah, just wonderful people we are led by. Yes, it's it's unbelievable. And Also, the FSB guy who led the entire operation won an award. It was the Hero of the Russian Federation medal. You don't even know what to say at this point. It's ridiculous. And by the way, an Interpol red notice was issued for Ahmed Zakayev, and he was briefly detained by the Danish authorities before being allowed to return to the UK on bail. And Russia, of course, demanded his extradition. But then he started reading the coverage about the events, right? So he realized some things didn't add up at all. Like, for example, the men who carried the theater attack were known extremists who were under constant surveillance by the secret Russian services. So how did they manage to travel to the capital of Russia 
with, you know, assault rifles and explosives and all that stuff. And how were they allowed to gather at the theater and do all that stuff? Because they were all under very heavy surveillance. That could have never happened unless the FSB wanted it to happen. And as Zakayev was reading in the papers the names of these 40 terrorists guilty for the theater gassing, he noticed a name, Kanpasha Terkibayev, also known as Abu Bakar. And this guy was notorious in Grozny. He had been part of so many separatist cells that the leaders of those cells were convinced he was an FSB agent provocateur. So this guy's like the Charlie Manson of the FSB. <laughs> yeah, no, like it just gets crazier and crazier. So Zakayev, who obviously had a lot of contacts on the ground, he put out some fillers and with help from his people in Grozny, he found out that Terkibayev popped out after the siege at the theater and he tried to infiltrate yet a new organization by showing off his role in the hostage taking. <laughs> of course and, he did. <laughs> but see, the thing is, the official story was that all the militants were killed. So how did just this one make it out? The same way Charlie Manson always got released uh, when he stole a car or, uh, you know, robbed a liquor store or whatever. Because when you're an informant for literally every three-letter agency in the world, there's always going to be somebody to take your call and tell the sheriff or the jailer or the chief of police or whoever, no, 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 let that guy go. He's all right. So that's it. So the commission, the independent commission in Russia, now expanded its inquiry to see if Putin and the FSB organized the opera siege as well. So they needed someone to operate in Chechnya, but they needed someone that is trustworthy and has a good network, good connections on the ground, right? And that woman was Anna Politkovskaya. And she was the only one who had the guts to do that. As I said, she was working for Novaya Gazeta, and that was one of the last remaining free publications at this point. And she had a really, really good source web on the ground in Chechnya. So during the siege also, she was involved. Uh, she used the trust she had built among the Chechen people. And she tried to facilitate negotiations between the Chechen militants inside and the FSB. Something seemed wrong to her then, like the FSB didn't really seem to be so open to negotiations. But she actually went to Chechnya and she tracked down Terkibayev's file from Yushchenkov, who was an MP and one of Russia's non-corrupt politicians. And he was on that commission that was investigating the Moscow bombings and the theater situation. And just a few days later, as Yushchenkov parked his car near his apartment building. As he stepped out of the car, he was shot three times in the head and nobody was ever arrested. And that's how the members of the commission, one by one, started to be killed. Maybe Putin watches the same gangster movies as me. Probably, but unlike Putin, I mean, I would say you turned out better, you know, so. <laughs> well, the worst thing I did today was I closed the door on the dog's toe and she was very upset. Of course she is. You have to pay attention. Poor bear. Oh, my goodness. I also have a bear, just like Putin. Only my bear is real. <laughs> yeah, and your bear is a dog, by the way, for our listeners. His dog, uh, is her name is Callie, and she's adorable. And I also have a dog who's also adorable, and they're both kind of chunky, because we cannot refrain ourselves wow. from feeding them peanut butter and stuff yeah <laughs> yeah there's nothing wrong with giving a dog peanut butter and ice cream they like it so no ice cream it. is bad ice cream is bad for them but peanut butter it's fine as long as it doesn't have sugars and other things in it well they get the sugary let's be honest they're gonna get whatever they want so politkovskaya 10 days later published her article about the hostage situation at the theater and in the article she detailed how she tracked down Terkibayev, and more than that, she managed to persuade him to talk to her. And this guy made an insanely revealing statement. He said that he indeed led the terrorists into the auditorium, and then he squeezed out right before the attack, and he told her up front 
that he was FSB, and he even said that he was a consultant to the Kremlin. Now, everybody said, well, why would he actually admit to all of that? That can't be, but he would probably admit to all of that because, let's face it, he was a guy the FSB used to find out information and he never had to be part in killing anybody. So I think for him, when a reporter came to talk to him, he thought, you know what, what the hell, I'm going to actually say the truth. And he did. And eight months later, he was killed in a very peculiar car crash incident. Well, you know, those ladders, <laughs> those ladders are not reliable. So, yeah, it isn't it something funny? Something can happen anytime. <laughs> yes. And isn't it funny how everybody who dares to speak or investigate this ends up dead suddenly? Everybody ends up dead. The theater siege was obviously an FSB attack on its own people, too. And it was another pretext and false flag operation for Putin to consolidate power and look strong as a leader who is attacking the uh, Muslim terrorists. And in June, just two months after Yushchenko's assassination, Putin was welcomed in Britain and he was riding next to the Queen and the West still loved him. Of course, because the only thing the Western world cared about, really, since the Carter administration, maybe even, was terrorist. Terrorist is the worst thing in the world. And if you are dealing with terrorists as the strong man in the newly privatized for-profit Russia, then how can you be bad? That makes you good. Exactly. That's the point. And you know what? This Tony Blair stuff and Putin's visit to the United Kingdom, he was treated when he got there with all the pomp and all the royal courtesy, right? It was amazing. And it hasn't happened to any Russian leader basically since uh, Tsar Nicholas. And Amnesty International, you know, and other human rights people and groups, they were really trying to make their voices heard. And they were really trying to pass on the message that, look, you need to stop praising this man. Uh, Putin is killing people in Chechnya. He's doing horrible war crimes. We're talking about torture, mass killings and raping women. And it, it was horrible, but nobody really cared. The West still still was enthralled with Putin. And yeah, we talked about before, you know, Putin has this obsession you know, with the Clintons because of uh, his personal feud over the Ukraine protests spilling over into protests in Russia when he was coming up for a re-election. But a lot of this is really Putin taking advantage of the conservative narratives in Western politics for how they want their voters to look at the rest of the world. The neoconservative George Bush narrative that is conjured by people like the Bush family, when they need to drum up support for something they have in mind, is if the facts don't fit the story you need to sell, then just change the facts. I mean, they did that when they invaded Iraq, and they've been doing it since the 70s when George Bush Sr. was at the CIA. All of that political you know, messaging ideology was born there, and uh, it would make stuff up about how you know, South American drug cartel guys were, you know, secretly aiding the communists when really they were shooting at each other and they didn't like each other. You know, and Putin, I think he has a he has a way of paying attention to the Western press and figuring out how can I take advantage of how they think and how they work and turn it around in my benefit. He has a talent for that. Yes, he's the master of disinformation, and I think he knows how to exactly touch on the soft spot in any democracy and work it from there to where he uses very, very, very small cracks maybe in that democracy to make them big, big, massive Kenyans, really. That's yes, that's a good way. That's a good. It's about anticipation. You, you can't just react to what they do and try to gain their favor that way because if you do that, they are driving you. You have to anticipate how they will react to what you do and you move first. That is a good way to describe it and that is a talent that he has. He's going to do what he's going to do. His talent is in how am I going to make them forgive me, not only forgive me, but like me for it. And that is where 
he is uh, more clever than his predecessors. Yes, and that's how he was allowed to have all these interminable transgressions and horrible things he did over time. And he didn't happen in a vacuum. That's why we got to the Ukraine situation, because all he got was always slaps on the wrist. Yeah, if we convince people of anything that listens to this, I would hope it's that nothing is unconnected. There are no solitary events in this world. Everything is an action or a reaction from something else. We're all trapped in Hegel's mind forever. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy your stay. And back to the story. In Russia, things were not looking good for the members of the Independent Commission investigating these events. Yushchenkov's murder scared them a lot. And three months after his assassination, Yuri Shchashchkin started uh, having these very weird symptoms, very weird illness, like red blotches all over his skin, his hair started falling out, and then his internal organs began to fail one by one. He died 16 days later. The FSB kept his body away from the family, and the necropsy was performed in secret. His family members were told that he died of an allergic reaction, but they were denied access to any of his medical files, and all the records about this case were immediately classified. Well, you know, it's a good thing that Putin gave away his share in the East German slash St. Petersburg real estate company to his friend and future nuclear material dealer, uh, Dr. Smirnov, because if he hadn't given that away, he might be suspected of poisoning people with radioactive <laughs> materials. But it could not have been him because Definitely uh, Dr. Not Smirnov, him. Dr. Smirnov is in charge of 10x, not Putin. So it can't be him. Yeah, no, it is absolutely amazing how all these things didn't add up to I don't know, the International Court of Human Rights, all the war crimes he's done in Chechnya, all the poisonings, the killings, and these are ones that he did on Russian soil. He actually changed the legislation a little bit later on to allow him to kill Russians on foreign soil as well. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he wanted to get to Berezovsky and he wanted to get to Litvinenko and he wanted to get... But yeah, that's... And he changed the law, like he changed the constitution so that he can be in power till 2036 if he doesn't yeah. die in the meantime because we discussed in our episode that he might be ill. But at this point, the commission pretty much was not doing great. People were scared. One single person remained in the end committed, and that was Trepashkin, the lawyer, the one who was working with the daughter of that victim, of that mother who died in the bombings. And he continued to just dig and dig and dig. And now he was looking again into the apartment building bombings. And Gochaev, the official culprit, he had now obviously gone dark, but Trepashkin managed to find something. So after the blast, the local police produced this sketch of a man who was suspected of planting the bomb. And this sketch was based on a description given by the building manager. We call it administrator. I'm pretty sure the Russians do the same. Administrator is the person whom you go to and you fight with for every little thing that you're not happy about. And it's really funny because administrators, that administrator, they're not paid or anything. Here, building managers, I think they have like some kind of a... What do you mean not paid? What is like... Wh Back then, no. Like the administrator was like somebody who was in charge of the building, but not officially, I don't know, not legally. Do you know what I mean? It was more like... So it's like, it's like somebody who lives there who volunteers for the job or yeah, something? Yeah, and somebody who people generally like and they all decide that, okay, you're going to be the administrator. And now it's probably different. I think now they have some kind of financial motivation. But back then, at least when I was a child, the administrator was just the person who was collecting uh, fees for repaying the elevator or things like that. I'm not saying some people... Oh, might. so he was paid. It's just it's, it's on the kind of on the backhand. You know, it, it I get is, it. They might have schemed a little bit of the top, you know, repair the elevator, yeah. but also, but I'm saying officially they weren't paid. Anyway, that's just a bit of like funny Soviet culture <laughs> thing. Listen, <laughs> no, back, we, we <laughs> back in the USSR, so bribes were a very common thing. Like uh, even years after the revolution in Romania, when you went to the doctor, you had to bring a present, uh, usually consisted of coffee, cigarettes and chocolate. Yeah. The most, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to derail too much, but the most ridiculous thing I've seen reading in the last few days about all this stuff is uh, there was a picture 
in the late 90s of a guy who just bought a new Lada, and he had to call the priest closest <laughs> yes. to the car dealership and pay the priest to bless the Lada. Yes, yes, that's another thing that was very popular, not anymore because we're not as religious anymore, not my generation, but... Back when I was a child, yes, generally the priest would bless everything, even the house, at least two times a year, the house you lived in. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't do it twice a year, he's like the cleaning lady. If you don't get the priest in here, the, the ghost, ghost. is the ghost is going to come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So back to the building manager in one of those buildings that blew up. So Trepashkin went and looked at these files and he saw that initially the local police had this sketch of a man who was suspecting of planting the bomb. And it was based on the description provided by the building manager. But what Trepashkin saw was that this sketch was taken out immediately from the files. And now there was a different image of an entirely different face in the FSB <laughs> files. <laughs> so the second sketch was the one that was really famous, you know. Did uh, it look like Osama bin Laden? <laughs> No, strangely enough, though, all the copies of the first sketch were no longer anywhere to be found in any of the official files. So Trepashkin started digging through old press articles in case it had been published before the uh, FSB had the chance to pull it back. So he found it in a local newspaper. And this was a picture of a dark-haired, weird man in his mid-30s, not the one the Kremlin said was guilty. And looking at this picture, he recognized the guy. It was one of his former colleagues from the Lubyanka. <laughs> yes, and he even knew his name. He recognized him. It was somebody whom he worked with. He was an FSB agent and his name was Vladimir Romanovich. This was really the evidence that the man initially suspected for planting the bomb uh, was FSB, not Gochayev, the one that Putin and the Kremlin was blaming. So it wasn't a Chechen guy. It wasn't a Muslim. No, it was an FSB guy. Yeah. So he went and talked to the administrator and he asked him, look, I found these two pictures. I don't know. I'm confused. I don't want to make the wrong accusations. What if I'm not right? Which one of these guys did you really see? And one of the pictures looks like Osama bin Laden. The other picture looks like Boris the Blade. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. The administrator confirmed that he saw Romanovich, the FSB agent. Okay, so it's Boris. Oh, it's Boris. <laughs> it was Boris, yes. <laughs> and he also said that he was detained and taken to a prison and interrogated as soon as he released that sketch to the press. And the FSB obliged him to say, no, it was this guy that I actually saw. That's how they printed Gochayev's photo in the press and made him this internationally wanted Muslim terrorist and criminal. In fact, it was the FSB who did all of that. Yeah. Now, because of the situation with the commission and all his colleagues being one by one killed by Putin... Trepashkin gave all his files to a trustworthy uh, journalist and told that friend, look, if something happens to me, please publish everything before the trials. And a week before the hearing started, Trepashkin was arrested. Obviously, it made up charges. The FSB claimed that he had an illegal firearm. And then they dropped those charges and brought some new crazier ones. And this just kept going on and on. So Trepashkin was put in prison for about four years. Yeah, so the, his journalist friend did publish the story, but at this point, it was a little too late because the Russian press was almost entirely state-controlled. And of course, world leaders continued praising Putin, but uh, Litvinenko, Boris Berezovsky, and Anna Politkovskaya, who were still alive at this point, did not give up on speaking truth to power. But honestly, that's a continuation for another episode. For now, I would say... What happened with the Moscow apartment bombings and the theater hostage crisis has been going on in Russia since Putin came to power. And officially, to this day, the Kremlin still says that they had no involvement. Of course. Yes. Of course. Of course. So if you're Alexei Navalny, if you have a curiously easy escape from prison land in your lap, don't get in the car. You should probably walk and walk the other way. Don't get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good point. Get back in the prison because it's probably a setup. You may be, yes, you may be safer in the prison. Whatever you do, uh, don't get in the car. 
Yeah. And I would also like to recommend uh, an amazing book. Look, I've read so many books about Putin and the Kremlin and the Lubyanka and the FSB and the GRU and the whole disinformation situation and everything. I really am obsessed. I, I, I like reading about this stuff. But this is one of the best books really, and one of the best investigations that I've recently come across. So the book, it's called From Russia with Blood, The Kremlin's Ruthless Assassination Program and Vladimir Putin's Secret War on the West. It was written by Heidi Blake, and honestly, I recommend it with all my heart. You can find it on Audible too. I actually listened to it. I didn't read it, I have to be honest, uh, just because my eyesight is getting worse and worse with doing so much research for our episodes. <laughs> and of course, I would like to recommend Blowing Up Russia, written by Alexander Litvinenko and Yuri Felstinsky. And Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned by Putin for writing this book. So of course, it's an amazing read. So that's Putin's Rise to Power Part 2. Maybe he's not just Michael Corleone. Maybe he's like Kaiser Soze. Because <laughs> <laughs> picture a guy laying in a hospital bed dying of radiation poisoning saying Kaiser Soze over and over. <laughs> Anyways, there will surely be more. I mean, we haven't even gotten close to modern times yet. Yes, we haven't even scratched the surface about Putin. And for our uh, friends here who obviously love our content, we'll be back for you guys soon with really good content. And also feedback is appreciated. If you want to hear about certain subjects, please get in contact with us. We're on social media at Dubious Pod. And also you can leave us reviews and maybe suggestions and come on our website and tell us what you think. And thank you so much for listening. See you on the next one. See you.